Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Coal and the Coal Mines, written by Homer Green and published in 1889. This story looks at coal from the beginning, how it was formed, how it was mined, and everything in between. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Firstly, I would like to say a massive thank you to Andrew Fein for becoming a new patron on Patreon. Your monthly contribution will help me bring out more episodes for those who need them, and it is greatly appreciated. Thank you to everybody who took the time to leave a review in their podcast player of choice. Thank you to iTunes listener Tim7222 for your lovely review on iTunes. I'm glad the podcast helps you tackle those 4am wake-ups. Thank you also to iTunes listener XOXO82 for your lovely review. I'm glad it helps you go straight to sleep. And thank you to Chris for your lovely review on Podcast Republic. As always, I am extremely grateful to all the patron supporters and anchor sponsors who support the show financially with a monthly contribution. Whether it's $1 or $5, your monthly contribution allows me to bring more episodes to those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. If you would like to say hello, you can also visit boyyoutosleep.com. You can say hello on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching for the Boy You to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the ratings. Coal and the Coal Mines by Homer Green Preface In treating of so large a theme in so small a compass, it is impossible to do more than make an outline sketch. It has been the aim of the author to give reliable information free from minute details and technicalities. That information has been, for the most part, gathered through personal experience in the minds. The literature of this special subject is very meagre, and the author is unable to acknowledge any real indebtedness to more than half a dozen volumes. First among these is the valuable treatise on coal mining 
by H. M. Chance of the Pennsylvania Geological Survey. Other volumes from which the author has derived considerable information are the Stage Geological Reports of Pennsylvania, the Mine Inspector's Report of the same state, and the Coal Trade Annuals issued by Frederick E. Sword of New York. The author desires also to acknowledge his indebtedness for valuable assistance in the preparation of this work to John B. Law and Andrew Bryden, mining superintendents, and George Johnson, a real estate agent, all of the Pennsylvania Coal Company at Pitson, Pennsylvania, and to the offices of the Wyoming Historical and Geological Society of Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. Coal and the Coal Mines, Chapter 1 In the Beginning. Everyone knows that mineral coal is dug out from the crust of the earth, but the question frequently is asked concerning it. How and under what conditions was it formed? In order to answer this inquiry, it is necessary to have recourse to the science of geology. A brief review of the geological history of the Earth's crust will be of prime importance, and it will not be inappropriate to go back to the origin of the Earth itself. But no man can begin at the beginning, that is too far back in the eternal mists. Only the infinite mind can reach to it. There is a point, however, to which speculation can journey, and from which it has brought back brilliant theories to account for the existence of the planet on which we live. The most philosophic of these theories as it certainly is the most popular, is the one known as the Nebula Hypothesis, propounded by Laplace, the great French astronomer, in 1796. This theory accords so well with the laws of physics and with the human knowledge of the age that most of the great astronomers have adopted it as the best that has been given to us, and the world of science may be said to have accepted it as final. Let us suppose then, in accordance with this theory, that our earth was at one time a ball of liquid fire, revolving on its axis and moving in its orbit around the parent sun with the motion imparted to it in the beginning. As cooling and condensation went on, a crust was formed on its surface, and water was formed on the crust. The waters, however, were no sooner spread out than they were tossed by the motion of the atmosphere into waves, and these waves, by constant friction against the rock crust of the earth, wore it down into pebbles, sand, and mud. 
the silt thus made being washed up on the primitive rock and left there by the receding waters became again as hard and firm as before occasionally a subsidence due to the contraction of the earth's body would take place and the sea would again sweep over the entire surface depositing another layer of silt on the one already formed or possibly washing that again into sand and pebbles this process continued through an indefinite period of time forming layer upon layer of stratified rock or excavating great hollows in the surface already formed that period in the history of the earth's crust before stratification began is known as archean time this was followed by the period known as paleozoic time which is divided into three ages the first is the age of the invertebrates it was during this age that life made its advent on the earth the waters were the first to bring it forth but before the close of the age it began also to appear on the land in isolated spots in the simplest forms of vegetation the next age is known as the age of fishes during which vegetable life became more varied and abundant winged insects floated in the air and great sharks and gars swam in the sea then came the carboniferous age or age of coal plants in which vast areas of what are now the middle southern and western states were covered with low marshes and shallow seas and were rich and rank with multitudinous forms of vegetation but these marshes were again and again submerged and covered with material washed up by the waves before the final subsidence of the waters left them as a continuing portion of the dry land it was at the close of the carboniferous age that great disturbances took place in the earth's crust before this the rock strata had been comparatively level now they were folded flexed broken rounded into hills pushed resistlessly up into the mountain ranges it was at this time that the upheaval of the great appalachian range in north america took place following this came mesozoic time which had but one age the age of reptiles it was during this age that the type of reptiles reached its culmination the land generally brought forth vegetation though not with the prolific richness and luxury of the carboniferous age birds insects and creeping things were abundant and monsters of the saurian tribe swam in the seas roamed through the marshes crawled on the sandy shores and took short flights through the air the last great division 
is known as the Cenozoic Time and covers two ages, the Age of Mammals and the Age of Man. It was during the Mammalian Age that trees of modern types such as oak, maple, beech, etc. first made their appearance and mammalian animals of great variety and size, both herbivorous and carnivorous, roamed through the forest. True birds flew in the air, true snakes crawled upon the ground, and in the waters were whales and many kinds of fishes on the present day. But the marine monsters and the gigantic and ferocious saurians of an earlier age had disappeared. So the world fitted to become the dwelling place of the human race. Then began the age of man, an age which is not yet complete. Such in brief is the history of the earth as the rocks have told it to us. Without their help, we could know little of our history. Through all the periods of time and all the ages, they were being formed, layer upon layer of sand and silt, of mud and pebbles, hardening with the passing of the centuries. But while they were still soft, they received impressions of the feet of birds and of beasts. They were marked by the waves and were cracked in the fierce heat of the sun, and their surfaces were pitted by the raindrops of passing showers. Shells, corals and sponges were embedded in them. The skeletons of fishes and the bones of animals that walked or crept upon the land or flew in the air were covered over by them. They caught and held the drooping fern, the falling leaf and twig and nut. They closed around the body of the tree itself and buried it from sight. And as the soil hardened into rock, bone and shell, leaf and stem hardened with it and became part of it. Today we find these fossil remains sometimes near the surface of the earth, sometimes hundreds or thousands of feet below it. We uncover them from the soil. We break them from the rock. We blast them out in the quarries. We dig them from the mines of coal and ore. It is by them and by the structure of the rock which contains them that we read the history of the earth, a history covering so long a period of time, from the beginning of the stratification of the rocks to the age when man appeared upon the globe, that no one has yet dared to reckon the millions upon millions of years which intervened, and give the results of his computation to the world as true. The first question that would naturally be asked concerning the subject with which we are dealing is, what is coal? In reply it may be said that it is a mineral. It is black or brown in colour, solid, 
heavy, and amorphous. The specific gravity of the average Pennsylvania anthracite is about 1.6, and of the bituminous coal about 1.4. There are four varieties of mineral coal, namely anthracite, bituminous, lignite, or brown coal, and carnal coal. To this list it would not be improper to add peat, since it partakes of most of the characteristics of mineral coal, and would doubtless develop into such coal if the process of transformation were allowed to continue undisturbed. The principal element contained in each of these different kinds of coal is carbon. The anthracite coal is hard and brittle, and has a rich black colour and metallic luster. It ignites with difficulty, and at first burns with a small blue flame of carbonic oxide. This disappears, however, when ignition is complete. No smoke is given off during combustion. Semi-anthracite coal is neither so hard, so dense, nor so brilliant in luster as the anthracite, though when once fully ignited, it has all the characteristic features of the latter in combustion. It is found principally at the western ends of the anthracite coal basins. Bituminous coal is usually deep black in colour, with little or no luster, having planes which run nearly at right angles with each other, so that when the coal is broken, it separates into cubical fragments. It ignites easily and burns with a yellowish flame. It gives off smoke and leaves a large percentage of ashes after combustion. That variety is known as caking or coking coal, and it is the most important. This is quite soft and will not bear much handling. During combustion it swells, fuses, and finally runs together in large porous masses. Following the question of the composition of coal comes the question of its origin, of which indeed there is no longer any serious doubt. It is generally conceded that coal is a vegetable product, and there are excellent reasons for this belief. The fragments of which coal is composed of has been greatly deformed by compression and decomposition. But when one of those fragments is so thin that it will transmit light and is then subjected to a powerful microscope, its vegetable structure may readily be distinguished. That is, the fragments are seen to be the fragments of plants. Immediately under every separate seam of coal, there is a stratum of what is known as fire clay. It may, under the beds of softer coals, be of the consistency of clay, but under the coal, seams of the harder varieties, it is usually in the form of a slaty rock. This fire clay stratum is always present and contains in great abundance 
the fossil impressions of roots and stems and twigs, showing that it is once soil from which vegetation grew luxuriantly. It is common also to find fossil tree stems lying mashed flat between the layers of black slate, which form the roof of the coal mines. Also, the impressions of the leaves, nuts and seeds, which fell from these trees while they were living. In some beds of carnal coal, whole trees have been found, with roots, branches, leaves and seeds complete, and all converted into the same quality of coal by which they were surrounded. In short, the strata of the coal measures everywhere are full of the fossil impressions of plants, of great variety both in kind and size. If a piece of wood be subjected to heat and great pressure, a substance is obtained which strongly resembles mineral coal. The coal contains a very large proportion of carbon, and its composition has already been noted. If therefore it is a vegetable product, the vegetation from which it was formed must have been subjected to some process by which a large part of its substance was eliminated, since wood or woody fibre contains only from 20 to 25%. But wood can be transformed by combustion into charcoal, a material containing in its composition 98% of carbon, or a greater percentage than the best anthracite contains. This cannot be done, however, by burning wood in an open fire, for in that case its carbon unites with atmospheric oxygen and passes invisibly into the air. It must be subjected to a process of smothered combustion. Free access of air must be denied to it while it is burning. Then the volatile matter will be freed and expelled, and since the carbon cannot come in contact with the oxygen of the air, it will be retained together with a small percentage of ash. The result will be charcoal, or coal, artificially made. The principle on which this transformation is based is combustion or decomposition out of contact with atmospheric air. But nature is as familiar with the principle as is man, and she may not only be discovered putting it in practice, but the entire process may be watched from beginning to end. One must go for this purpose first, to a peat bed. This is simply an accumulation of the remains of plants which grew and decayed on the spot where they are now found. As these remains were deposited each year, every layer became buried under its succeeding layer until finally a great thickness was obtained. When we remove the upper layer, we find peat with its 52 to 62% of carbon, 
and the deeper we go, the better is the quality of the substance. It may be cut out in blocks with sharp spades. The water may be pressed from the blocks, and they may be stacked up, covered and dried, and used for fuel. In most peat bogs, the process of growth is going on, and may be watched. There is a certain kind of moss called sphagnum, which in large part makes up the peat-producing vegetation. Its roots die annually, but from the living top new roots are sent out each year. The workmen who dig peat understand that if this surface is destroyed, the growth of the bed must stop. Consequently, in many instances, they have removed the sod carefully. There is little doubt that if these beds of peat could lie undisturbed and covered over through many ages, they would take on all the characteristics of mineral coal. A step farther back in geological history, we reach the period of the latest formations of lignite or brown coal. This coal is first found in the strata of the glacial period, or first period in the age of man. But it is found there in an undeveloped state. The woody fibre has not yet undergone the complete transformation into coal. The trunks and branches of trees have indeed softened to be the consistency of soap, but they will retain their natural colour. Going back, however, to the strata of the Miocene, or second period of the tertiary age of mammals, we find that this wood has become black, though it has not yet hardened. But when we reach the upper Cretaceous, or last period of the age of reptiles, the transformation into coal has been complete. The woody fibre is now black, hard and compact, though it may still be easily disaggregated by atmospheric action, and we have the true lignite so because of its apparent woody structure. The next step takes us back to the bituminous coal of the Carboniferous Age, the character and consistency of which has already been noted. And finally we reach the complete development in anthracite. It is, however, the opinion of the best geologists that the bituminous and anthracite coals are of the same age and were originally of the same formation and character. That is, they were all bituminous, but during the violent contortions and upheavals of the Earth's crust at the time of the Appalachian Revolution, at the close of the Carboniferous Age, the bituminous coals involved in that disturbance were changed by heat, pressure and motion, and the consequent expulsion of volatile matter from bituminous to anthracite. Carnal coal is a variety of bituminous coal, burning with great freedom, the flame of which affords considerable light. 
It was called Candle Coal by the English people who first used it, as it often served as a substitute for the household necessity. But the name soon became corrupted to Carnal, and was so renamed. It is duller and more compact than the ordinary bituminous coal, and it can be wrought in a lathe and polished. A certain variety of it, found in the lower Ulitak strata of Yorkshire in England, is manufactured into a kind of jewellery, well known by its popular name of jet. It becomes of interest now to examine briefly into the causes and process of the transformation from vegetable substance into coal. To note the character of the vegetation which went up to make the coal beds and to glance at the animal life of the period. As has already been said, the plants of the Carboniferous Age were exceedingly abundant and luxuriant. They grew up richly from the clay soil and formed dense jungles in the vast marshes which covered so large an area of the earth's surface. Ferns, mosses and tufts of vegetation and the leaves, branches and trunks of trees fell and decayed on the place where they grew only to make the soil more fertile and the next growth richer and more luxuriant. Year after year, century after century, this process of growth and decay went on until the beds of vegetable matter thus deposited had reached a great thickness, but condensation was still in progress in the earth's body and in consequence of it her crust of necessity at times contracted and fell. When it did, so the land sank throughout vast areas. These beds of incipient coal went down, and over the great marshes the waters swept again, bringing drift of vegetation from higher levels to add to that already buried. Then, over these deposits of vegetable matter, the sand and mud and gravel were laid up anew, and the clay soil from which the next rich growth should spring was spread out upon the surface. This process was repeated again and again, as often indeed as we find seams of coal in any coal bed. Thus the final condition for the formation of coal was met. The exclusion of atmospheric air from this mass of decaying vegetation was complete, and under the water of the ocean, under the sand and silt of the shore, under the new deposits of succeeding ages, the transformation went on. The wood of the Carboniferous era became the coal of today, while above and below it the sand and clay were hardened into rock and shale. The remarkable features of the vegetation of the coal era were the size and abundance of its plants.
trees of that time whose trunks were from one to three feet in diameter, and which grew to a height from forty to one hundred feet, are represented in our day by mere stems a fraction of an inch in diameter, and but one or two feet high. A comparison of quantity would show differences as great as does the comparison of size. But at the time, all the conditions were favourable for the rapid and enormous growth of vegetation. The air was laden with carbon, which is the principal food for plants, so laden indeed that man, who is eminently an oxygen-breathing animal, could not have lived in it. The great humidity of the atmosphere was another element favourable to growth. Vegetation never lacked for abundance of moisture either, at root or leaf. Then too, the climate was universally warm. Over the entire surface of the earth, the heat was greater than it is today at the torrid zone. It must be remembered that the internal fires of the globe have been constantly cooling and receding, and that the earth in the Carboniferous Age was subjected to the greater power of a larger sun than shines upon us today. With all these circumstances in its favour, warmth, moisture, and an atmosphere charged heavily with carbon, vegetation could not help but flourish. That it did flourish amazingly is abundantly shown by its fossil remains. The impressions of more than 500 different species of plants that grew in the Carboniferous era have been found in the coal measures. There are few of them that bear any direct analogy to existing species, and these few have their counterparts only in the torrid zone. The most abundant of the plants of the coal era were the ferns. Their fossil remains are found in great profusion and variety in most of the rocks of the coal-bearing strata. There was also the plant known as the tree fern, which attained a height of 20 or 30 feet and carried a single tuft of leaves radiating from its top. Probably the species next in abundance, as it is certainly next in importance to the ferns, is that of Lepidodendrids. It doubtless contributed to the greatest proportion of woody material to the composition of coal. The plants of this species were forest trees, but are supposed to have been analogous to the low club mosses of the present. Fossil trunks of lepidodendrids have been found measuring from 100 to 130 feet in length and from 6 to 10 feet in diameter. Similar in appearance to the lepidodendrids were the sigillare, which were also very abundant. The conifers were of quite a different species from those already named, and probably grew on higher ground. They were somewhat analogous to the modern pine.
And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you enjoyed listening to this story about coal. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be bringing you another episode very soon. Good night.